Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. See, the disciples didn't realize they were heading into a storm. They didn't see it coming and were sadly unprepared for it. Even worse, it wasn't years away or months away or weeks away or even days away. It was only hours away when Jesus would be taken from them, when they would see him crucified. In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Another Comforter. We move on into John chapter 16, and this study is gonna cover the whole chapter. To comfort his disciples in the wake of the news that he will be arrested and crucified, Jesus tells them to expect the giving of the Holy Spirit to them, and that their weeping and lament will turn to joy. So, let's listen in. Jesus' disciples had been devastated by the news as he was with them there this last night by the way he knows that he'll be arrested before the night is over that he'll be handed over and and well beaten and mocked and ultimately crucified he knows all that and he's been trying to tell them for months and months what's coming when they make it to Jerusalem, but they're really not processing that information yet. And so what happens is, is he tells them earlier, all of you are going to forsake me. For the scripture says this, the shepherd will be, will be uh, smitten and the sheep will be scattered. And then he says, one of you will betray me. And Peter's like, yeah, we know, Lord, it's you and me. They're flakes. You got me, though. And he's like, I got you, all right. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Well, this leaves them devastated and, and confused. He's talking about going away and, and such things. Well, how are any of the things they're looking forward to and banking on going to happen if the things he's saying now are going to happen? See, the disciples didn't realize they were heading into a storm. They didn't see it coming and were sadly unprepared for it. Even worse, it wasn't years away or months away or weeks away or even days away. It was only hours away when Jesus would be taken from them, when they would see him crucified, when their hope and, and, and the promises he made would be dashed only to see him rise again as he told them he would again and again and again. How did it happen that they didn't understand? Every time, and you can go back and check it out, he began to talk about what was going to happen to him. They wanted to change the subject to what's going to happen to them. He'll tell them here, by the way. But they weren't thinking about, well, if he suffers, we might have to suffer too. That will, in fact, be the case. What they're 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 doing is is well they're blinded by their ambition for position in the coming kingdom they argued regularly about which of them who among them would be the greatest listen that seat was taken he's the greatest in the kingdom of god but here's what they missed they couldn't see the cross comes before the crown and they couldn't process how the cross could lead to the crown all they had was confusion and discouragement and depression. And, and so he tells them these things I've spoken to you here in chapter 16, verse 1, that you should not 
be made to stumble, forewarned, forearmed. They should have been prepared. He says specifically, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. He reminds them there in that last statement, I've been with you. When the crowds were hungry, I fed them miraculously. When you were being accosted by the enemy, I protected you. I got in between you and them. And so, but he says, I'm going to be leaving and I need to prepare you for that eventuality. And he does it by saying, listen, don't let what happens next trip you up. Don't let it take you down. Don't let it leave you hopeless and discouraged. Listen to what I'm telling you. He tells them specifically, they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, put out of the synagogue. In our culture of individualism and everybody does what they want, it's hard for us to even imagine growing up and living in a culture where the, the, the group was more important than the individual. But that's how it was for them, you see. And so the synagogue, that was the hub, that was the center in every community, not just of religious activity. That's where, well, the civil things happened too. That's where they got together and, and fellowshiped with each other and worshiped God and offered, well, everything they had to him. He says, the day is coming. You will be excommunicated from the synagogue. It had already begun. The parents of the man born blind, you may recall the story and you should. I think it was in John 9. Well, after he was, you know, healed by the Lord, they, the religious leaders come and say, hey, who did this to you and how did he do it? They wanted to know who, although they were pretty sure it was Jesus. Who else could give sight to the blind? And they wanted to know how because they were looking for something to accuse him of whereby they could condemn him. And the blind man, well, he's got quite a testimony. Ultimately, it's like, well, I don't know who and I don't know how. Here's what I do know. I was blind and now I see. They're not happy that about that. And they go and they get his parents and they're like, is this your son who you say was born blind? And well, how does he then see? And they're like, well, he is our son. We know that. And we know that he was born blind, but how he sees, hey, we can't tell you. He's of age, ask him. Why? You gotta know he told them, hey, this guy, Jesus, he came and, and here's what he did. And here's what, look at, I can see. They should have been jumping for joy and rejoicing and celebrating that, that, that those courtyards should have been filled with people dancing for joy. But that wasn't happening, you see, because the religious leaders subdued all that and actually turned it on the people that had the most reason to celebrate. They wouldn't say what they knew to be true because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. It had already been determined and they already knew that would be the penalty. That would be the punishment. And they weren't willing to risk that. Not yet. Not at this point. So in any case, the synagogue issues, they're big in scripture because that, again, the hub of every community. Jesus at one point, and it was early in his ministry, he went home to Nazareth where he grew up. 
Everybody knew him there. They heard what he was doing elsewhere. And he comes into the synagogue and they give him the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read his mission statement saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me too. And then he describes all the miraculous things They'd heard he'd been doing. And at the end of all of that, right before he gets to the part that prophesies the day of God's wrath, he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and says, this day, these things are fulfilled in your ears. He literally stops mid-sentence and he doesn't read the day of God's wrath because that's the second coming stuff, you see. And all the stuff he read was things they knew Messiah would do in his first coming. He's saying, here's what I'm here to do. Here's what I am doing. And it says the people were amazed at his gracious words. The crowds were blown away and blessed. And then he began to talk to them about two Gentiles who God provided for and, and showed love to during a time of great suffering and famine. One was in the days of Elijah, the next was in the days of Elijah. And as he talked about those Gentiles and God's love for them and blessing on them, well, the people's attitude changed completely. And they took Jesus out of the synagogue and they took him to the brow of a hill and tried to push him off a cliff. Couldn't work, didn't happen because Jesus is no pushover. But it's important to note, he just walked through the crowd. And as he did, well, you can bet that would not lead to a, a joyous return next time to the synagogue for him or a, a warm welcome from the people who had been so blessed and blown away at the things he said and the things he taught and the things he did. So excommunication from the synagogue, a real issue for those already who'd experienced it. And he's saying to the disciples, this is coming for you. This is what's gonna happen to you. Then there's this sincere belief that persecuting them was well within the, the will of God, was actually the desire of God. Those who plotted Jesus' death, they end up adding Lazarus to their hit list. Why? Because Jesus raised the guy from the dead who'd been buried four days. And now he's known as the guy who used to be dead, but lives up the hill. And people know that it happened and, and they're like, we're going to have to do him in and take him out. We can't have him sitting around testifying of Jesus' power. And he didn't have to say a word. The very fact that he was alive was enough. Well, in any case, Saul, and we touched on him, you should read his uh, testimony in scripture. He writes most of the New Testament, but we know him as the Apostle Paul, formerly persecutor of the church. And he fully and truly believed that Christianity was a cult that needed to be stamped out, that needed to be put out. And so he did everything he could. He was zealous for the tradition of the fathers, the scripture says. And he showed that zeal in trying to stamp out Christianity. Of course, once Jesus gets a hold of him, he becomes the greatest witness of his day. He started more churches and won more people and wrote more books to various churches and individuals than anyone else that we have in scripture. And I think since. In any case, he's saying excommunication is coming and there will be very sincere people who think killing you will please the father.
Then he says in verse five, but now I go away to him who sent me. None of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, the promised Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In John 6, Jesus said, and we've read, I came down from heaven to do the will of my Father in heaven. Over and over, he says, I do always those things that please the Father. He, he, he said, the, the work I do, it's the work he gave me. The words I share, they're the words he gave me. And now he's told them, and we saw this back in chapter 14, that I'm going to have to go, but I'll send you another. And we learned that that word another means another just like him, another of the very same type. So much so that Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one's gonna see the Holy Spirit, but he will do for them all Jesus had been doing, teaching them, and well, he's gonna lay it out so I don't have to tell it to you, I'll read it to you. But he does say, well, and in John 15 or 14, excuse me, he was called the spirit of truth. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's called the helper. He's called the comforter. And, and he says, when he comes, he'll teach you and bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. So we add to those here in John 16, 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's no small issue that the Holy Spirit is a person. And I hear people referring to him as an it. I recently dedicated little Darcy and, and um, I, I was, her parents were sitting right here first service and I, I was thinking, does anybody ever say, what is it? And, and, and they're like, no. And I'm like, well, good, because you wouldn't like it. And, and of course not. Like, what is it? It's a little human girl. It's our daughter. What's wrong with you? The question would be, what is, who is she? Or what did you name her? We know that people aren't it's. But, but the Holy Spirit isn't an it either. He's a person. Third person in the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we speak of him, we should use those pronouns. He did this, and here's what we've learned from him, and here's how he works. That's exactly what, it's here, but not always obvious to us. It doesn't jump out at us. Now, convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, I want to say, how grateful I am that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not my job to convict you that you're a sinner or convince you that you're a sinner. But I will tell you, and I'll tell you in love, you are a guilty sinner in the sight of a holy God. The scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and all includes you. The wages of sin is death, the gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying he is going to convict. He is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, he personalizes all of this because he's about to die for our sins, buried and risen again. He'll ascend to heaven. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. And his primary work was and is to point us to Jesus. And in order to point us to Jesus, he first shows us we're in need of Jesus. 
It is hard to start with, you know, Jesus died for your sins. Have you heard of Jesus? He died for your sins. And people are like, what? What are you talking about? Sin? What sin? Listen, people do need to know that they're sinners. And today people are willing to call, well, what they do, an indiscretion or a minor fault or some kind of failure. Well, we've all done things that aren't the best. We have so many euphemisms and so many ways to avoid saying it. Sin is a spiritual term. That's why the Bible uses it. It's not just an indiscretion. It's not just a minor offense. It's an affront to a holy God. And we were created by him and for him and our sin separates us from him. And that's why he hates sin. He hates sin because sin destroys people he loves, destroys families he's provided and, and, and communities and countries. So he says specifically, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, in the midst of that, know that he doesn't finish his work when he convinces us we're sinners and that Jesus is the savior. He is the standard of righteousness, the bearer of righteousness, the, the giver of righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. You probably already processed this. If righteousness were dollars, we would be billions in debt. We have zero righteousness and lots of unrighteousness. That's why we could never atone for our own sins, nor can we atone for the sins of others. It took Jesus, the only righteous man, to pay for the sins of all unrighteous men and women of righteousness because I go to my father. His, his death proved that he loved us and was willing to lay down his life for us, but his resurrection proved that that sacrifice was acceptable. And then his ascension, he returns from where he began. He was with the father, we learned in John 1, with the father in creation, all things made by him and for him, it says in Colossians. And so he says of judgment, because Jesus took on and did in the ruler of this world, Satan, there on the cross. He put him to public display. He revealed the impotence of Satan. Oh, he could take Jesus' body, but Jesus rose from the dead. And by the way, no one took his life from him. Jesus says, I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This command I received from my father in heaven. Well, he goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I already mentioned the why of that. They're confused. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They can't process. How can he be talking about the cross when we're looking forward to the crown? How can he be talking about dying when we want to rule and reign? And he said, we're going to. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, he says, you who followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That, by the way, is literal, will happen, will be a part of that kingdom. But, but they have specific places in it. And they were the first to walk with him and believe in him and be empowered by him and go out for him to change their world. Well, he says, 
when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth. He'll not speak of his own authority. Whatever he hears, he'll speak and he'll tell you things to come. He's the spirit of truth. He guides us into the truth. He alone knows and reveals the future. We've already uh, processed that, but he's saying it again. He will tell you things to come. Now, we live in a time when people embrace the most incredible and foolish lies. And the reason for it is very simple. They don't know God's word and they don't have God's spirit. Even the religious establishment of Jesus' day, it was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees, very conservative. They knew all of the word. They believed in all of the word. Of course, they only had the Old Testament, but it was enough. We have even more. We have the Old and the New Testament. We have the complete word of God. But then the Sadducees, well, they liked Moses, but they didn't believe a lot of the books that followed. And they kind of just, they saw the, the word of God like a smorgy. I'll get a little of that. I'll take, a, oh, I'll take a pile of that dessert. And so they, they took what they liked, but they disregarded what they didn't. And, and they come and they're, they're trying to trap Jesus regarding the, the, the resurrection, which they don't believe in. And they present this difficulty to him. They think it's a trap he'll never get out of. And he says, you do greatly err, not knowing the power of God, nor the scriptures. And listen, that's what's going on today. It's happening in the culture. That's why people in the culture, they're caught up in spirit guides instead of the Holy Spirit. Those spirit guides, they say, lead them to speak with and fellowship with their departed loved ones. But listen, we're going to be reunited with our loved ones in the air. The trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them and with him in the air. And it says, thus will for all, forever and always be with our Lord. And so we're not looking for some spirit guide to come along and say, hey, he, grandpa has something for you. No, listen, that's complete nonsense. And, and, and if it was just nonsense, that would be a problem. But these people are being deceived, not by God, because, well, he only tells the truth. He always does what's right. His spirit is the spirit of truth, the spirit of holiness. So not only do they believe, well, that their dead relatives visit them, which doesn't happen, by the way, but they're also told crazy things like you're going to meet this tall, dark stranger and, and, and well, you're going to spend the rest of your life with him. Now, I don't know how tall Satan is. And I don't know, you know, you know, well, I do know this. God is pure light and in him is no darkness. Satan is pure dark and in him there's no light. So that tall, dark stranger is waiting for them, but he's waiting to introduce them to hell where he will spend eternity with them. Why is he so hell-bent, if you can use the term, on bringing people with them? Misery loves company. And Satan knows his judgment is coming. And he's trying to take as many people down, not just so they'll be with him, but so that they won't be with the Lord. Because see, he hates the Lord. And he hates the people that love the Lord and the people that the Lord loves. An interesting thought is it pertains to spirituality that doesn't include Jesus. Kind of like the ones Sam spoke of who seek spirit guides. The desire for spirituality is given to us by God. 
We all have a spirit and it was made in the likeness of God. Many in the world want to lead a spiritual life, but they want to leave Jesus out of the equation. Why? Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, speaking of God, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Now, God cannot be just unless he judges injustice. And no one wants to be judged, so they just cut that part out, or at least they think so. They think it will be easier to follow a path that does not require judgment. The problem is that that is not possible. It doesn't exist. Everyone needs mercy. And in the enemy, they will find no mercy. Only in Jesus Christ will you find mercy as he bore the judgment that we all had coming. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.